Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. My mother taught seventh grade for over 40 years. And sometimes during Meet the Teacher, I would watch her. She was so happy to see all the students and meet the parents. And she had this natural excitement about what the year was going to bring and just this anticipation of all the awards and accolades the students were going to get. And she just started promoting how fabulous their year was going to be the very first time she met them. But every single year, almost instantly, as a student and the parent would leave, she would say to me, that's going to be my troublemaker. Now, all this child did was walk in a room, see where their desk was going to be, meet my mama and walk out. But she knew this is going to be the shy child. This is going to be the jokester. This is going to be the jock. This is going to be really the class clown. And then this child is going to be the superstar. I mean, as soon as they crossed the threshold, she knew. So I often tell people, teachers, especially elementary school teachers, are profilers. Tonight, our guest spent 22 years in the FBI, investigating everything from violent crimes, like serial killers, to white collar crimes, to public corruption, to civil rights cold cases. Before joining the FBI, our guest was a special agent with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. She went on to become a team leader for Boston's Rapid Evidence Response Team and then was selected to the elite BAU. Her education took her to the University of Oregon where she got a bachelor's degree in chemistry and then went on to get a master's in forensic science from George Washington. She was the head profiler for the Golden State Killer case, and she has a podcast called The Consult. Now, this podcast, True Crime, of course, examines behavior before, during, and after the commission of a crime. And y'all have heard me talk about that. Pre and post behavior is a money tree. Julia, thank you so much for being a part of Zone 7. Thank you for having me. And I have to say, when I got your message, my heart skipped a beat. I'm who I was thinking to myself, who's this famous person reaching out to me? <laughs> oh, honey, come on now. Me and you, I feel like we could probably sit at a cop bar for several hours and never miss a beat. I feel the same way. I know we have a lot in common, a lot of similar interests. And I'm I'm hoping we get through this today. Me too. Before we really get into some of your cases and talk about some of the highlights of your career, I want to know your process. Do you have a particular area that just draws you in? I mean, you just gravitate towards something within a case file first, whether it's photographs or reports or witness statements? Mac, everybody, at least the people that I work with, have a different process. But because of my background in forensic science, I am interested immediately in the crime scene photographs, the autopsy and the autopsy photographs. That's where I go to first. I, For me, I get the most out of that trying to determine, okay, what happened? Can I piece back together what happened between the offender or offenders and victim or victims? So that's what I gravitate toward. And, and that's my background. And, and then also, I always like to, of course, look at 
any lab results that might be available. And in some of the cases we work on, they're, they're not available or they just didn't have enough forensic evidence to, to get a lot out of um, lab testing. For me, I always say the photographs are the most honest. You don't have any input. You can't change it. You can't say your opinion. That's what it was. There's no opinion. There's nothing that's moving somebody to have blinders on. So I like to start with what was it? What is there that, you know, I can maybe see something somebody else hasn't seen or go ahead and say, hey, this looks like blank. Um, so for me, it's always the photographs. And I mean, I guess, like you're saying, that comes from being a crime scene investigator. I mean, obviously, that's our bread and butter. Yeah. And then, you know, not only the crime scene photographs, but I, you know, I, I'm certainly not a medical examiner, but reading the autopsy and trying to distinguish, you know, for instance, which wounds were deadly, which wounds were not. Is there gratuitous violence or these mistakes or these defensive wounds? So really studying the photographs along with the autopsy and what the medical examiner, I think those for me, as you said, you put it, tend to be the most honest. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying anybody in a witness statement or a police report is being dishonest. I'm saying just true, just factual. This is what was left in the ashtray, period. This is what was in the trash can, period. And nobody's, you know, saying, you know, well, they seem to be a religious family. Based on what? One Bible in the family room? You know, I want the photographs. I don't want the conjecture. Right. And, and I agree. It's not about the honesty, but it's when you look at a photograph and you write down and interpret it, that is one step away from from what's actually there. Just, you know, just one slightly step. So I like to see it for myself. And of course, it's no different for me. My interpretation of it is one step away from what we're looking at in those photographs. 100%. So you worked on the Golden State Killer, but you knew that case as the East Area Rapist. And when I did the analysis, when I got involved and the, um, it was the Sacramento division of the FBI had received a request from the sheriff's department for, you know, an updated profile. And that was about in 2011. And at the time it was still known as the East area rapist, original night stalker. So that was like a combination name after the series of sexual assaults in Sacramento were connected to the homicides in Southern California in 2001. And then they combined the names. And then, of course, it wasn't until Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, she had dubbed him the Golden State Killer in an article in L.A. magazine prior to her book. And so that name, that was the name that stuck. It is interesting to me because monikers matter. I'm a big nickname moniker, a.k.a. person, especially when you have a case where you have more than one moniker and more than one composite drawing. We're big monikers in the FBI, too. So if we have a big type of investigation, we'll, we'll give it a name. We won't just call it, you know, by all the potentially you could have multiple subjects. You, have, you could have multiple victims. You might not have the name of the offender or the subject. And so we, we give titles and, and sometimes for these bigger cases, these what we would call major cases in the FBI, we give it a name. So I, I'm used to that. But I do understand how some people don't like that because sometimes those names tend to glamorize the offenders. And there's nothing glamorous about these offenders whatsoever, but it, it makes it easier. And sometimes it makes it so we all know who we're talking about. So once they, you know, once the name of the Golden State Killer, we all knew who we were talking about. We were talking about the person not only responsible for all the sexual assaults, but they're also responsible for the murders that occurred um, in Southern California. So it kind of combined everything and everybody was kind of on the page. OK, this is who it is. And, and I think partially having these different monikers for this specific offender maybe created some confusion and he sort of flew under the radar. I mean, he really didn't become known until he became known as the Golden State Killer. And then everybody knew of him because it was a you know, 
it was a easy to remember and it connected all of his offenses together. So when you first get this case, I'm going to assume it was more than a hundred pages. <laughs> it was about 15,000, I think. <laughs> oh, it was overwhelming. Yeah, to say the least. And, and I want everybody to understand it's not, you're just not reading it like a book. You're having to read and analyze and read and analyze and put in some type of category and section so that you can make sense of whatever profile you're coming up with. When I started, and I and I it was it's it was really overwhelming. So what I started in with was just starting with the first offense that the investigators attributed to this offender. And I got about 15 into it. I mean, it was about in my 15 offense. And I started to notice some things and realize some things about him in particular. And I thought, you know what? I, now that I'm starting to notice these things, I need to start over, <laughs> go back through and make sure that what I'm seeing is in fact happening in every single case. And, and I, you, you do that. Sometimes you have to start back over if you notice something. And so it, it, it took me a while. It, it probably took me a full it initially probably about six months to really get a handle on everything, but really about two years to really finalize everything. Did you find when you went back through that maybe you even saw some sub-level detail that you had not noticed before? Yeah, you always pick up something new. <laughs> you, it, you know, it, it's especially something like this. And, and what made I mean, it sounds like much more daunting than it actually was because this particular offender was so ritualistic and he did things the same way almost every single time. And so that made it a little bit easier. So what I tried to focus on are the times where he didn't do something the same. And what was going on around him or how was the victim reacting or did the victim say something or was there some sort of outside influence that caused him to deviate from his normal plan? And those were the time, those were the things that I tried to focus on with him to, to really try to understand his personality traits and characteristics. You're saying it like, oh, this is what I did. And it's just, you know, I took six months or two years. I mean, you know, obviously... But again, <laughs> for some of us, and you think, okay, I'll give you an example. You watch a movie, you love the movie, you watch it again, you notice things. You watch it a third time, you're like, oh, I didn't see that, or I didn't notice that. I get that part, but it's also sometimes extremely difficult, you know, to edit your own research paper. I mean, you almost always have to give it to somebody else. So when you start looking at that case for a third time, a fourth time, a 19th time, You've got it almost memorized now that you can't see something new unless you just almost do a grid sheet and look at it in spaces. Right. And that it, you have to be very careful not to get tunnel vision or to get so fixated on in your opinion. So that's why I, I didn't actually do this alone. I mean, I was the lead and I was the one that went through every piece of documentation that was provided by the different agencies. And there were, there were, you know, I think there were 15 jurisdictions involved in this investigation. I could be wrong, but I think it was about 15. And so uh, what I did is I, you know, I worked alongside my colleague, Bob Drew, who was in the unit, but also I ended up doing like an in-house consultation with the entire unit. I think a couple people weren't able to attend, but with the, the unit. So there were five or six of us trained profilers going over the case to make sure that I wasn't, you know, getting tunnel vision or I wasn't, you know, I wasn't missing something or seeing something that was there or, uh, or seeing something that wasn't there. So yes, so that's why we do it. We don't do it all by ourselves. It's, it's really a, a group effort. And of course, um, you know, there's always a lead. And if there's a disagreement, the tie goes to the lead. And ultimately, if they, if they can't agree, it will ultimately be my supervisor's decision. Like, okay, I'm going to make the final determination if, um, you know, if this is going to be what our analysis says or not. So, uh, while I did look through everything, I, I certainly, um, 
didn't just go with my own opinion. I, I worked with other people on creating the profile so that I, I felt like it was the strongest product as possible. But that's powerful to me. And it also speaks to the way you operate in the whole BAU because you you shouldn't have it all by yourself. You should look to as many people as can look at it. But I also want to say again, most of us through Criminal Minds or whatever movies or whatever's just in our head about the way y'all operate, it's all, you know, wheels up in 30 and you get to the scene and it's all fabulous and you're working and then you're done and you move on. But it's not that. No. <laughs> it's not that at all. I wish it was. I wish it was a little. No, yeah. actually, I don't. You know, it's it's very much. I would. You know, once you're in BAU, you're not a typical investigator anymore, and you also have to relinquish control because these cases that come into us are not our cases. The the agencies requesting, and it's mostly state and locals that request our assistance or requested our assistance, and it. It's their case. We don't take it from them and they can do whatever they want with our analysis. They can, you know, they don't have to agree with it. Um, so, you know, it, this is, this is not us going out there and conducting the investigations or conducting the interviews or making the arrests. It's, it really is kind of a desk job. We, we go through investigations that have already been done. And then, you know, a lot of times we will go out to the crime scenes and look at them. I mean, obviously, you know, they're certainly, um, you know, the, you know, they're certainly not the same as, you know, when the victims were found, you know, we're not processing crime scenes, but, you know, if, if we can go to a location and it hasn't changed much, it's, it's a really good idea to, to see, to, to go there and see it for ourselves to get the perspective. But other than that, it's not, it's not the same. It's, we're not kicking in doors. We're not doing arrests. We're not, um, conducting interviews, at least not interviews that are investigative interviews. And might, there's a lot of research that's done and, and you might be conducting interviews for research, but even that's rare. There's a whole other unit dedicated to research. So it's really just, you're a consultant and you're reviewing the work. And then a lot of times we provide investigative suggestions on cases. Well, we, you know, can you see if you can obtain this information and, um, and sometimes there's further investigation that we recommend and then they come back and then we update our analysis for them. So it's a process. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I always tell people there is nothing that takes the place of walking that scene. And then I usually use a updated example. And recently I've used the Delphi murders. Until you walk that and get to that bridge and then walk to where the victims were found and know what's on each side, you can't possibly understand what that place looks like. And to me, it does give insight to the killer because he picked that place. He picked that bridge. He picked that park. He picked that day. He picked that time. He picked those victims. So that tells you something about him. For me, walking the scene usually adds so much for me of the perpetrator. I, I completely agree. And I can think of one case in particular where a woman she was an older woman who owned a bookstore and she was murdered in her bookstore. So we went out to the scene 
And it was on a busy road, but we get there and we see that the front door, so the bookstore was attached to her home and it had like a little walkway out to the bookstore, but there, the front door to the bookstores was covered in ivy and you couldn't even see it from the road. It was, it, you wouldn't have known it was there. Had in, and she did deal, you know, she, there were some antiques in there and it was, you know, um, she sold little knickknacks in there and she dealt with people who she knew mostly. And I thought this is very strange because if somebody wasn't familiar with this area, just happened to be passing by, they're not going to know to go into that door. That you wouldn't see it. And so that was an aha moment for me having seen it. And you could not, you could not tell that by the crime scene photos that how hidden the, the front door to her business was. And it turned out that the killer was a kid, you know, right down the street. You take that neighborhood. How far is that neighborhood from a town? How far is it from a church? How far is it from a school? How far is it from a park? Well, that's going to shrink your suspect pool immediately. And with a hidden door, I mean, it sounds lovely, but it also sounds very dangerous. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I completely agree. It's, it was always very important. It wasn't necessary in every case. I mean, and, and it was almost impossible for us to go out to every scene. But every time I did, I got something out of it. And I, and I want to back up to something that you said earlier about going back over the cases and and finding something you missed every single time and even with the Golden State Killer I am still finding things that I missed and I and I kick myself and and one one thing recently was pointed out to me by a listener and I'm like that's a great point I wish where were you when I needed you <laughs> It was it was a fantastic point and it was something I had ne I had not considered it and I wished I had you know even to this day all these years later and and everything that I know about the case or, or think I know about the case I, I'm still like I'm learning things still you know and and you know you're not always going to be right you're not always going to catch everything you do your best and that's why sometimes having you know other eyes on it from other perspectives can be really helpful. Yeah. I got an email from a listener and I wrote back and I said, that's a great point. And I think he was surprised that I didn't say, Oh, you, what are you talking? You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> or, I, I or, didn't miss anything. What are you, yeah, are you insane? Did, wait a second. No, <laughs> he was, he's like, wow, what is such a nice response? And I'm like, I just wish, you know, I can't, I can't fake that. I, I should have caught that. That's a great point. You know? And it was, it was a small point in subtle point. Um, but darn it, I wish I got it. <laughs> but you know, it's so funny, Julia, because people have this idea that you have to be an expert in every single thing. Well, that's not possible. So, I mean, I don't speak another language. I don't read music. I mean, there's lots of things that I'm going to miss because there's no way I would be able to know what is happening. I don't know why somebody would have that sheet music on a piano. I don't know why somebody would write in that language or have that symbol. So to me, more people that you have that you can trust, that you say, hey, <laughs> and I do this all the time. And some of my, you know, best buddies that are former FBI, um, I will call them and I'll say, okay, what am I missing? I'm going to send you this. This is, I, I know I'm missing something, but I just can't for whatever reason, see it or think of it. And when you have people Again, and this is critical that you trust <laughs> to, you know, sit with you and talk to you and go, hey, have you thought about this? Or why don't you contact this person? And, you know, you learn so much, right? Like y'all have access to a lot of things that we don't have at the local level. However, it's a phone call and y'all will come. And I mean, to me, what a great way to work that I don't have to know. I don't have to solve it. I don't have to be the smartest or the best or even adequate. I can call somebody who is. 
you're exactly right. You don't have to know everything. And you, and that's sometimes I think the mistake some people make is that they think they have to know everything. It's okay to not know everything. I certainly don't know everything. And I'm always like you calling people that I know, particularly like, can you please interpret this, these lab reports and, and, or can you interpret these wounds for me? What, you know, what does this mean to you? <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm always doing that. And I think that just, that helps because, um, it puts everything, you know, it, it makes your, your analysis more accurate. And, you know, I've always tried to surround myself with people that I think are better than me because that just makes me better in people that I think know more uh, than I do or who can teach me. And, you know, that will only make me better. And to do that though, you kind of have to be vulnerable. You have, you have to, you know, you, and you have to be able to take criticism. You have to be able to admit when you're wrong. You have to be able to admit when you don't know everything. Cause it can be hard when you're like, you think you've worked so hard on something and somebody's like, you know, this really isn't, it's not quite right here. Or I don't, I think you missed something or, and you have to be, you have to be willing to be open to that. And, and if you're not, then you're going to make, you're going to make mistakes and it's not going to be the best quality product as possible. And it's funny because, you know, you hear people in the public and they'll say things like, oh, that was overkill. And it really wasn't overkill. And then you hear them say mass murder when that's not what he is either. You know, so to me, when I have a situation, you know, I have one really good friend and she's a psychopathologist and I'd look out and reach out to her all the time. And so sometimes I'll call her and I'll say, okay, girl, look, all I know is he's crazy as a rat in a coffee can. Can you please add to that? So then she'll come back and she'll say, look, this is what I see. This is why he's doing it. He drew this picture and left it at the scene because, and what I see from this picture is one, two, three, four, five. It'll blow my mind that she got all of this from a drawing where what I got from it is he's crazy. That to me is so beneficial and so powerful that to me, it's not even having to admit I didn't know something or I was wrong. I'm still right. He's crazy. And he's probably going to hurt somebody again really badly. But she's able to give me information that I can help the detective say, you're looking for this type of person. Right. And and that's your instinct. That's your your instinct from years of being in this kind of work and, and maybe even the instinct you're born with. And so you, you have this feeling and it's always great to have a, that person that can help you articulate what you're seeing. And you, sometimes we can't really put our finger on something. What am I saying? Why is this bothering me? What am I missing? And then you have the person you can go to and they can put, they can put your feelings into words for you. And it's like, ah, and then you, then you can explain it. So I, and I have those people <laughs> that I can do, you know, and I, there'll be times they're like, why, why do I have a bad feeling about this? Or what am I, you know, I can't quite put my finger on this. And then, you know, and it, and, and it, these people are part of my podcast as well. And they can help me articulate like my, maybe my gut feelings or my instincts that I can't quite articulate. And it's great to have, be surrounded by people like that. To me, it changes your entire career when you have those people. And that's the whole premise of zone seven. As you know, those people that have your back, that you can trust, that are only looking out for you, that cheer for you, that are not going to do anything to, you know, hurt you, only elevate you. That's the whole point. And hopefully we can do that for them in return in some way. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a game changer for me to have stuff. And my son has just started a career and he's an investigator with the public defender's office. And one thing I said to him the day before he started, I gave him a printout of some people, their names, email, and phone number. And I said, look, there's a lot I cannot do for you. But one thing I know I can do for you is give you people that can help you. And so I just gave him a few people to start with that I knew, you know, if I wasn't able to be around that he had somebody he could call. And that to me is the ticket, whether it's professionally or personally. It really is a team effort. You can't do it all by yourself. 
And if you did, as I was saying earlier, you're, <laughs> you're going to miss something. Yeah. And, you know, you rely on these people. And, and really, don't we all have the same goal? We all have the same goal. And if, you know, we're all working toward justice, and that's the, that is the bottom line. And we want to do the best we can. It doesn't matter if, you know, somebody else knows something more than you about a particular subject. It, that is not a reflection of you. Your ability to reach out to that person and know where to go and get those resources to, to do that, that is a reflect. You are still, even if you're not the one that, oh, I, I solved it or I got that you were a big part of getting it solved because you are willing to reach out to the people who can help you. And that's, you know, that can take a lot for some, as you know, <laughs> egos in our business. <laughs> what are you talking about? I, no, no egos, <laughs> but there are, and you have to, you really have to set it aside. And I, I think too, as you, as you get older, it gets a little easier to just say, you know, to not be so opinionated and, you know, and, and recognize that you're wrong. And especially like in behavioral analysis, there is, there is room for error. And if you tie yourself so tight to one theory and that turns out to not be right, it's really hard. So with behavioral analysis, it's a little bit more like, okay, it's likely this, um, but you know, you have to recognize it's not always going to be right. And anybody that says that they're always right or that behavioral analysis can identify if an offender like that, that just can't happen. It's impossible. Um, so, you know, just admitting that I could be wrong about this. And if you kind of go into things with that mindset, it's a little bit easier to take if you are wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's, that's really important to be able to say, this is what it looks like to me but it might be something different, <laughs> you know. No, that's that's really important. And again, not just in your business, in a lot of businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, and certainly there's some fields where you really can't be wrong. <laughs> you got to get <laughs> you got to get those diagnoses right. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> but, helpful. Yeah, but you know, in, in something like behavioral analysis where it's it's really not an exact sign. Now, obviously, we rely on the you know, the, the laboratory results have to be right. And, you know, those things are, are more concrete, but with behavioral analysis, yeah, you, you know, you, you're going to have to realize this isn't going to be a hundred percent, but you also have to trust the process and, you know, do it as thoroughly and in as unbiased way as you can. People also have to realize your analysis is only as good as the information that you're given. And if something really critical is left out, it could change what you're seeing. We had a case in Georgia where it looked like a suicide, but then the person that the victim was with, nobody knew for a long time, was a butcher. So then they're like, well, would he know exactly where to stab? Would he know exactly how to do this? So again, everything matters. Every piece of information to me is critical. You know, we write reports when we finish an analysis summarizing, okay, here's what we're told and here are our observations and our analysis and if there's investigative suggestions. And at the end of every report, we say that this is just based on the information that's been given to us and that if new information is developed, then this analysis could potentially change. And it, it really is as, as good as the information. And we have to rely on that information. Um, as accurate, you know, we're relying that they, you know, they've done a, a thorough job here and that this is right. I mean, if I see lab results and they say, um, you know, this is you know, the result, this is the DNA analysis. And I, I rely on that. So I rely, okay, that is somebody else's DNA and this is the victim's DNA. So I, I rely on that. And if there's a mistake done, then, <laughs> which it, Typically never, I mean, I've never known that to happen, but at least it's ne never on, in any of my cases. But, but, you know, if there was a mistake done at some point in the investigation, yeah, that, that could alter what the analysis that, that we're giving. And like I told people recently about Tupac Shakur, we all thought Suge Knight had more information that he wasn't giving. We all thought Orlando Anderson was the number one, if not only suspect. And then dude comes out with a book. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now you have information you didn't have before where he basically confesses in the book that, oh yeah, 
I gave him the gun and Orlando went to work. I mean, so again, having everything is going to change your case. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. So let's jump into some of the cases that you were involved in beyond the Golden State Killer. I want to talk about one of the cases that probably impacted you greatly, the Walika cases out of Oklahoma. It did. So Walika, Oklahoma, that case involved the double homicide of two younger girls, um, Taylor Pascal Placker and Skyla Whitaker. They were ages 11 and 13. They were very close friends. And this was in June of um, 2008. And they were walking down a dirt road in a very rural area, not too far from Taylor's house. And they were shot and killed on the dirt road. And they were killed with um, two two guns. And uh, it wasn't too long. They had left to go for a walk. They had left um, Taylor's house to go for a walk. And her grandfather found them shortly after. And it was a case that I saw in the news. It was before I was in the behavioral analysis unit and I'd seen it on the news. It made national news. And I thought to myself, oh, what what kind of person would do that? And and when I was growing up, I grew up in a small town in uh, Oregon and I lived on a dirt road and I would go walking on that dirt road and I'd go for my runs on that dirt road. And I thought, gosh, that's you know, similar. I could, you know, I just could really relate to that. And I just couldn't, you know, imagine. So, so I was like, what kind of person would do something like that? And I, I would follow the case in the news to see if there were updates every now and then I would, I would search and see, you know, what's the news on it. And there, there were reports and they were looking for uh, a stranger that had been seen in the area, but, you know, potentially. And, um, but there, there wasn't a, a ton of progress. And then I, by the time I was in the behavioral analysis unit, I had looked up the case and I saw a report that the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation was going to be asking the FBI uh, for assistance, um, specifically the behavioral analysis unit. And at this time, I, I was still in training. I was not a certified profiler yet. And as part of our training, we have to work cases in the different units. And I had, I was assigned to the crimes against adults unit. So I didn't typically work crimes against the children, but I needed to do one as part of my training. And I saw that and I went to my boss and I said, do you think that they'll let me do this case as part of my training. And he said, well, why don't you go ask? I have no, I have no problems with it. So I went down to the other um, supervisor of the crimes against children unit and asked if I could be assigned the case as my training. And he agreed. And then I sat there and I thought, Oh boy, <laughs> I, all these years, I wondered what kind of person could do something like this. And now it's my job to, to find mm. that out. Mm. So it was kind of, it was like a very surreal moment that I had been so interested in that case. And then it was now my case to look at, or at least, you know, my case to assist <laughs> on. But, you know, you do feel like it is your case in, in a way, but you also realize that you don't have control over what the investigators decide to do. So um, so that that was a case that meant a lot to me to be able to assist with. And, you know, there were some things about 
that particular case that I, you know, when you go into the, um, went into the analysis and, and, you know, they were asking for, okay, we want to, we want a profile of the offender is, is basically what they're asking for. And, and in the BAU, we call that a criminal investigative analysis because it, it can be so much more than just a profile. But in this case, this is what they wanted. And so there were some things, you know, there were disagreements among some of the investigators because there were multiple weapons used. They thought that there had, there could potentially be two offenders. Um, they were thinking that it was potentially this, they had sent out a composite and, um, that, you know, could potentially be the stranger in the area. And, uh, and I also wanted to try to figure out what the motive was. So those were kind of the three questions I was trying to answer, you know, was it one or two offenders? Um, is this a local or is this a, you know, stranger? Um, is it, um, what was the motive for their killings? And then ultimately based on, you know, what I saw between the interaction between the offender and the victims, you know, what, what's the profile of this offender? So that was the task at hand on that case. And, um, you know, in that case, Mac, what really, I mean, I, I studied the crime scene photos and I studied the autopsies. Those were key to me or, you know, two major things to kind of determine and piece back together what happened that day on the road. And it was like, this is a Sunday afternoon. It was the beginning of summer. It was still light out. Um, it was, it was a beautiful day and, and what, you know, just, just to kind of compare and contrast this beautiful day with this horrifying thing that happens on this, you know, road in this, in this lovely area. And, um, so those were the questions that was kind of what I was, is, you know, going toward is to, you know, piece back together this, you know, what, what actually happened and, and, and looking at the autopsies and looking at the, the crime scene photographs and the, um, the really well done, um, crime scene investigation. There were some, there were some great notations that the, um, the crime scene investigators had made that were key that I couldn't have, um, uh, interpreted from the photographs. So I was able to kind of piece back together what I thought the sequence of events were, which was basically that the one victim Taylor was probably shot first and then Skyla turned to run and then he shot her multiple times and then went and got a different gun, um, which was a 22, and, and then shot both of them point blank in the head. And in looking at this, because so many investigators thought this had to be two offenders because there were two guns, you know, I had to consider that. But what I found is that there, you know, it, there was nothing that had occurred simultaneously where it had to be two offenders. This could have been done by one offender. And so then I kind of rely on statistics. And statistically, when you have a double homicide, you usually only have one offender. So I just kind of like defaulted back. Okay, this is likely just one offender because one offender could have accomplished this. And then another really key piece to this investigation was the girl's victimology. And I think sometimes victimology really gets overlooked in an investigation because sometimes questions can be hard to ask because you don't want to come across as you're blaming a victim. But we really do need to know everything possible about a crime victim and every bit of information, good and bad, because that kind of assesses their risks. And what I learned about these two victims, you know, there was a lot of speculation about, well, you know, they were communicating with somebody online and that person came and, and killed them or met up with them, or they came across a meth lab or they were going to rat out somebody, or this was a revenge killing because, their, uh, you know, their parents were involved in drug dealings. There, there, there were a lot of rumors. I mean, this is a small town area, and this was one of the biggest homicide investigations that, um, you know, had ever occurred in Oklahoma. So, as you know, Mac, there's a lot of talk. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. And I needed to. You just need to block all that out. And I. Mm -hmm. So what I had investigators do is I had them take questionnaires. 
that we called general assessment questionnaires. And this was to build on the victimology. And I wanted people who knew the girls well to fill out these questionnaires for me, whether they were their friends, teachers, um, parents, you know, as, as many as possible. So I could really understand uh, who these victims were and um, and where their risks might have come from. And what I learned was they were very low risk victims. You know, all these rumors about them, none of them were true. They didn't really have access to any internet. Um, one, one of the girls did have a cell phone, but the only calls ever made were to her grandparents. They neither, they weren't involved in, you know, drug activity. They, they weren't dating yet. You know, they were, they were both a little boy crazy, but there, there was nothing, um, that indicated to me that, that they were involved in any kind of lifestyle that could put them at risk for this. So what I really ultimately concluded is that the motive for this murder was formed on the road that day. Like somebody came across them. And I, I also thought this has got to be a local just based on the area. And this was a dirt road. It was a cut through used by locals. It wasn't well traveled. So I thought somebody came across them that day and whatever happened. And we, we didn't, of course, know, but decided to kill them and not only kill them, but, you know, there he, he's shot and killed them. And he goes in and retrieves a, another weapon and then shoots them both point blank practically in the head. These are the coup de grace. So he's making sure they're dead. Um, and so that obviously tells you a lot about somebody like what could two, you know, wonderful girls who were adored by their friends and families and their teachers do to somebody that would cause them to do this horrible act. And so it really tells me that tells you a lot about this offender. This is, this is, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, that, it, that's not hard to make the leap that this person could has absolutely no care in the world for anybody else. And, and, you know, and I pointed out some things that I thought would be um, characteristic of, of the, that kind of person that just lacks that empathy for anybody else and doesn't care about anybody else. And, and I think the other thing that I had said was, so the, um, the first weapon used, um, the laboratory believed it to be likely a Glock. And the second was a 22 going back to the victimology and making this determination that whatever happened on the road or whatever the motive was happened on the road that day, that this was not planned. And so therefore this offender is at least likely carrying around two guns with him at all times or people and know him to be carrying around these guns. And the shooting was well done. He didn't miss. Um, it was, um, you know, it was done quickly. It was done efficiently. So I thought this was somebody who had firearms experience. And so I had told, when I told the investigators, you know, uh, I guess a, a little moment of levity in a very serious situation, I said, well, this guy's a, a gun nut. And they all like, this is Oklahoma, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, no, I said, hear me out here, you know, cause I grew up in a small town where there are lot, lots of hunters and they carry their uh, guns and their gun racks in the backs of their trucks. I said, this is not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who's like obsessed about this, probably practices, probably, um, you know, probably brags to people that he can use his guns. And, and so not, not just your normal, you know, average hunter who has guns or somebody who's just, you know, carrying a gun for protection. This is somebody who's like has pride in these weapons. And they're like, okay, so they, they weren't laughing at. I'll tell you from the way you're describing even the road, not only would I say he's a local, he's right there. Yeah, it, it had to be local. And, and and going out to this area, there are all these, it was a series of dirt roads and they, they don't have, like, they're not, they don't have typical names. They're, they're numbered roads. So even when the 911 call goes in, the grandmother who makes the 911 call is trying to tell the dispatcher where they are. And it's very confusing. And driving out there, I was completely confused. Every, you know, every corner you come up to, it all looks the same to me. And I thought, this has got to be somebody that's local. And, and, you know, a couple months later, after I gave the profile, I got a phone call from um, the local FBI agent. And he said, hey, OSBI has arrested a guy who they believe killed his fiance. And 
the lead investigator who was a lead investigator for um, the double homicide was had interviewed this guy. His name was Kevin Sweat. And he told the FBI agent he fits the profile. It, you know, he's like, and so I get this phone call and I, I tell the FBI agent, I said, listen, I, I love how you're thinking. I'm really glad he's embraced the profile, but you know, just because, I mean, and, and certainly just because he did this and it's really bad, doesn't, you know, that's a big leap to make. And they're like, no, he fits the profile. He, he fits the pro. And as they started to tell me characteristics about him, I started getting this feeling like, I think this is him. This could, this could be him. And what are the chances? I mean, this, and, um, so, but one of the things that they sent me or they told me that he was posting, he had posted photos of himself online and these photos were sort of, I guess, glamor shots of himself posing with guns. And, um, I'm like, that's what I, I mean, even though at the time I didn't, I, I didn't, clearly no i just knew this is going to be somebody who's kind of obsessive with these guns um but when i saw that you know in a picture format i'm like that's him that's him and of course trying not to get too you know no i didn't want to have tunnel vision um too much and but i had a i'm like that that's that's what i was talking about and um so we developed an interview strategy um for the um, lead OSBI investigator and, and he conducted an interview and Kevin Sweat ultimately did admit to the murders. Um, it wasn't a perfect confession. He claimed that he saw, you know, he's kind of trying to pretend to be crazy. And he claimed that he saw, he was driving down the road. He saw monsters coming at him. And so he had to shoot and kill them. Then he gets back in his car and then he, uh, they come at him again. So then he's got to get out and shoot them again. And, you know, although, although that's not a perfect admission, what that tells us is he's telling us, I mean, that was exactly the sequence of events that I had described after going through the the crime scene photos and the autopsy. And that's how I had pieced it back together. And only he would know that that was the sequence of events. I thought, you know, I think, I, I think this is him. And he ultimately admitted that he had pulled over um, to take a leak on the road. And, um, you know, they've never... I don't think they've ever gotten an official motive, but hearing him say that, I thought, okay, what is he really saying? What he's saying there is that he exposed himself on that road. And so what I think happened, and you're, you know, we are dealing with somebody who has, you know, has a, you know, irrational response to things. So what I think happened is that he exposed himself to the girls and I think one of them recognized him because he did work in fast food with the older sister of one of the girls. So there was a connection. And I, I at least somebody, they, they either recognized him or they said something to him that was offensive or they said, we're going to tell on you. And he was not going to have that. So um, I think that's what I think the motive was, because I think even though he doesn't admit it, I think he, what is he telling us he actually did? He exposed himself. And so that's what I think. And then, you know, one other piece that really goes to, you know, his fragile ego and his, um, you know, his lack, complete lack of connection to any kind of real emotion was when he's on the phone, he's, he's under arrest. And as you know, they record all the jail calls and, and people never pay attention to the recording that tells you you're being recorded. <laughs> but we were listening to all his jail calls and the investigators would send them to me. And at one point, his mother tells him, they're going to charge you because he's already been charged with the murder of his fiance. And she tells him they're going to charge you with the murders of those girls. And his response to her is, what is that going to do to my reputation? And so that tells me that it doesn't, it didn't take much, did not take much for him to feel like, oh, wow, if people find out I've exposed myself, that's going to hurt my reputation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think it's hard for people to understand that it can be something that simple for somebody like that 
to ultimately, you know, take the steps that we can't, we, we can't even imagine like normal people <laughs> quote normal, um, would never imagine that, but there are people out there and, and he was one of them. And that's really what the profile was showing. Like we are not dealing with somebody that cares about anybody else. And there were certainly, you know, as investigators were going back and going over his life and his relationships with other people, um, you know, there were some real warning signs. I mean, I don't think anybody thought, oh, he's going to go murder people, but there were some really troubling things and in, in his interpersonal relationships that were, um, quite, um, telling and, and frankly, pretty scary to me. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Now, one thing I want to do before we conclude this fantastic evening is I want to highlight what you're doing on your podcast. So you didn't just do it for a living. Now in retirement, you're still trying to highlight and help and bring attention to unsolved cases. Can you talk a little bit about a case y'all covered on the consult, Jody Hughes-Entrooped? Yes. Um, so it, most of the cases on our show that we had done up to that point are cases that we had actually worked on prior. We'd done a profile of that case prior. This was a little different. Um, we had not, none of us had sat down and, and looked at this case before, but I was contacted by a journalist, Caroline Lowe, and she had been covering um, this uh, case of Jody Hughes and Trude. And, uh, for many, many years. And she was, she just came to me and she's like, can you take a look at this? Can, you know, and and she's always looking for ways to, uh, highlight and keep Jody's case in the spotlight. And I was reluctant because as we've already talked about, you need crime scene photos, you need autopsy photos. And, uh, you know, and I had not, you know, actually seen any of that, but, with the amount of information that was out there in, in this particular case, I felt like there was enough there that we might actually be able to cover it. And so the the story behind it was that in um, on June 27th, 1995, um, Jody, what, who was a kind of a local celebrity, she was the news anchor in Mason City, Iowa. Um, she had a, a coverage of about 300 viewers and she was extremely popular um, news anchor. And uh, one morning she was running late for work and she she did the morning and she had to be at the station pretty early, but she was running late. And uh, one of her colleagues had called her and, and Jody, um, you know, said, oh, I'll be right there. I, she, you know, she had overslept. So Jody grabbed her things. And and as she was running out the door of her apartment building, um, she was abducted and she never showed up for her um, for her. She never showed up at work and, you know, about seven o'clock, I think they did a wellness check and went over to her apartment and found that she had some belongings that had been strewn about. So it appeared she had grabbed like her hair dryer and her and um, her makeup and stuff like that and was going to get ready at the station, which was like her normal process anyway. And some of her items were strewn about and um, the key to her car was um, on the ground. It was bent. So almost like she was had put her key into the um, into the door and then was grabbed at that point. And um, so, um, you know, she's never been found and her family had her declared 
uh, deceased at, at some point several years after. And um, so Caroline asked us to cover this case. And I felt that we could because we actually did kind of have crime scene photos because it was outdoors and there are a lot of um, news cameras out. So I think we were able to kind of assess the crime scene that way. And of course, you know, her body has never been found, unfortunately. So there were no, um, you know, no autopsy reports. Um, reports and there's no secondary crime scene that has ever been found. So we were able to, you know, go through it and we had Caroline and it was like a, it was like a real consult. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it is as close as it gets to sitting in the room with the BAU where Caroline told us all the facts of the case. We asked her questions. Um, in the next episode, we covered Jody's victimology extensively. And I have to thank her family for um, helping us with that because, you know, there, you know, there's a lot of things reported in the news about Jody. And, and she was, um, you know, like I said, very well liked and um, very genuine. And but there are other you know, questions I had specifically for her family to help, you know, to help us really understand who she was and, and if she was having a problem with somebody, would she tell people, I mean, how did she handle stress? How, you know, all these things were really important uh, to us in assessing her victimology. And then our third episode, the three-part series um, in our third episode was, you know, our analysis of the type of offender. And one of the things that, you know, we don't do is we don't name you know, we don't talk about suspects generally. In this case, we did talk about a suspect because he's been so high profile, but we really just tend to stay away from that and really just focus on the behavior because we don't want any kind of confirmation bias. So, um, you know, so we just talk really about these are the characteristics and that as investigators that are out there, you know, they have to look at their suspects and try to see, okay, who, who fits this? And you, you, you can prioritize and we always call it, you prioritize somebody or you deprioritize somebody based on those characteristics. And of course we would never say, oh, you rule that person out. <laughs> we would never say that because, because this is not an exact science. Um, and so that's what we do. We, we came up with some um, personality traits and characteristics of the type of person who would do something like this. And we, you know, it's a, it's a conversation. We had to really work through different scenarios. I mean, is this somebody who saw her on the news and they, you know, suffer from the, you know, erotomania where they think they're in a relationship with somebody? Is this somebody who just impulsively saw her running out of her apartment that day and grabbed her? Is this somebody else who, who may have come across her on the news? They're not delusional, but they're like, I'm going to go grab her and I'm going to wait for her. Or is this somebody that's close to her that maybe had you know, some problem, like an interpersonal problem with her? Is this a personal cause homicide where somebody wanted to go get her and kill her because of some personal problem that they had? So we work through all those scenarios and kind of come up with what we think the profile of the offender is. And, and it's really just an assessment. It's our observations. It's very, um, it's very real. It's not sensational. I think sometimes people may get to the end of some of our shows and be kind of disappointed that we don't have this really strong opinion about something like this is who did it. And, and we never will because that would be irresponsible. So, um, so I, I do, I'm glad you asked me about that case because, um, you know, it is, it is that, is that one case I, I felt a lot of, um, sense of satisfaction. I, I don't know if the right word is sense of satisfaction, but it was very fulfilling and rewarding to be able to work on something like that and be part of, um, you know, be part of the effort to keep to keep it in the spotlight because these cases that are, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old, they get forgotten. And, you know, we move on to other things. We move on to these fast breaking cases. And it's like that as an investigator, sometimes you're just doing, you know, a fresh murder comes in, you have to be dealing with it right then and there. And the other things get put to the side. So, and I understand that. So it was just really rewarding 
to be able to highlight this case. And, and we'll be doing more of that on our show, hopefully. Um, you know, there's going to be some cases, you know, people bring us, you know, lots of suggestions and I'm sure you get lots of suggestions. And I look at them like, we just can't do a good job on that because we don't have access to certain information that we would need to be accurate. And we could make a lot of guesses, um, but it really wouldn't be honest to our process. You know, I could literally sit and talk to you all night long, and I just appreciate your willingness to come on and share so much with us and talk so effortlessly about not just your process, but, you know, what you put into it, your heart and soul. And then, you know, once your time was done with the FBI, that, you know, you're still reaching out and trying to help people, which I think is what this whole gig is about. I mean, we're in this thing to help people. And like you said, justice, that's what we want. I just admire you and I appreciate you. And you being here a part of Zone 7 is just a treat is all I can say, honey. Y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote. Lesson learned. Everyone is a potential suspect. And don't let looks or behavior fool you. John Douglas. I'm Cheryl McCollum. And this is Zone 7. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.